Could you tell me about one of your favorite kids' stories in the Bible? Um, my favorite is when, probably when Jesus was born. When Jesus was born, yeah, because he was a kid, wasn't he? Yeah. My one was probably a tiny kid, though. Uh huh. uh, Little, the guy did the miracle about the fish and the bread. Oh yeah, yeah. Because who brought the fish and the bread? A kid. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Um, my favorite was Jesus being born too. Yeah. Now, can you think of any kids in the Old Testament? What do you mean? Like the early, like some of the... Like cavemen kids. Cavemen kids? Wait, can can you... (laughs) Let's talk about the Old Old Testament kids. So... I don't know what that means. Uh, Okay, so like... like, Well, he's he's in the New Testament, but... He's not a kid. But he's he's not a kid, but he's little, isn't he? He was pretty pretty short. (laughs) Yeah. He was probably like four my height. Mm, Yeah, that's right. Four foot? So, from, Um, from like, okay... Are there any stories about him as a boy? David as in David, David. That, who fit, who fighted Goliath. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That yeah. story. I, I actually like that story because yeah. some tiny, yeah. tiny stones went... Yeah. And then, I like and then he went... Yeah, <laughs> and then exactly. a video in VeggieTales and it said, Dave and the Giant Pickle. Oh. <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> Um, actually, um, Dave, when Goliath went like, oh, boom, um, he didn't actually die. It just made him kind of fall asleep, and then David took... No, took, he was unconscious. Yes, mm. and then David took um, Goliath's sword and chopped off his head. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, do ki- I don't think that kids come up much in the Bible. More like tell- saying... This man had 50 sons. This person had 40 sons. This person had 99 sons. Yeah, it's true. You, do, you don't get a lot of stories about... Why do you think there aren't a ton of stories about kids in the Bible? Maybe because, like, kids... Uh, I don't know. Are quite young? Kids don't do much that's too important. Because maybe more their parents do it. Hmm. But, like, some kids do important things, like Jesus. Yeah. It was important that he was born. How about the kids that came to Jesus, you know, and his disciples were like, hey, go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's in the New Testament. Like, if we think back to the Old Testament, though. Um, kids don't come up that much, right? What about Jacob and Esau? Do you, can you think of a kid's story there? Oh, when they were born. Yeah, what happened? Um... One of them was holding their brother's hand. Jacob was holding his brother's hand. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. And they named him Heel Grabber. Yeah, that's right. Imagine if I was named Heel Grabber. (laughs) 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 A Heel Grabber, come here! Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at Onscript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash onscript. Welcome to the Onscript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. If you haven't guessed it already, this episode is about kids in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. So I thought, hey, let's have kids on the podcast. So I'm going to get right to it. In this episode, you'll have the pleasure of hearing Drew Johnson interview Sean Flynn on children in ancient Israel. This is a neglected topic, but not here, and not with Sean. So I hope you enjoy it. And as a reminder, if you could give us a quick review on iTunes, you'll receive a virtual pat on the back from us free of charge. Welcome, OnScript superfans. Uh, today I'm beginning a series and with this episode of of books that have to do with background and comparative work with the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And so uh, this episode, we're going to be looking at the issue of children and the ancient Near East more generally, from their conception to their life in utero, to their birth, to their breastfeeding and their raising and weaning, to their education, and even their untimely death in the ancient Near East. The question at stake here is, what was the value of children in the ancient Near East? Were they just utility players? Were they just viewed as uh, something to be put to work to sustain the family? 
Did they have nothing more than utility or economic value to them? Or was there something else going on? Uh, did, they, did they have an inherent value to them apart from their ability to work and contribute to society? Uh, today I have Sean Flynn with me, who is an associate professor of Hebrew Bible and the academic dean at St. Joseph's College at the University of Alberta, which I assume is in Canada. He is the author of two books, Yahweh is King, The Development of Divine Kingship in Ancient Israel, that's with Brill in 2013, and the book we're discussing today, which is Children in Ancient Israel, the Hebrew Bible and Mesopotamia in Comparative Perspective, that's put out by Oxford University Press in 2018. Dr. Flynn studied English literature at the University of Northern British Columbia, biblical studies at Trinity Western University, and began his doctoral work at Trinity College Dublin, which he completed at the University of Toronto in the Department of Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations. Also, you spent some time studying in Jerusalem, uh, as I see. So welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for having uh, me. I, I was actually going to try and pronounce the institute, uh, the Ecole Biblique, uh, but I, can, I, I'm, I can't pronounce French, so I won't even try. But uh, did, how long did you live in Israel? Oh, it was just a uh, summer, about three months, two or three months. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that in the, the speed round. Um, well, first, I want to ask you, um, hey, how did you become interested in doing not just Hebrew Bible, but uh, comparative work in the ancient Near East? Because that requires a whole nother series of skill sets to do that work well. Um, and then specifically, how did you become interested in the issue of children in the ancient Near East? Sure. Um, on the, I'm actually a late bloomer to the biblical studies game. So I did a degree in English literature, but I don't think people realize how valuable literature is as a background for um, now, the big chink I had in my armor was I didn't have any biblical languages. So I generously found a biblical program that would say, said to me, if you can pass a year of Greek and a year of Hebrew and do well, we'll accept you into our master's program. So that was kind of how I got into biblical studies in general. The ancient Near Eastern studies, I think, started in the master's, but it really kind of took flight um, in the PhD. Um, at the University of Toronto, I was, I was around Assyriologists and Egyptologists and Syriopal archaeologists, and I had to choose two minors. So it was Akkadian as a major, uh, first minor, and Egyptology as a second minor, and that just changed everything for me. I was constantly fascinated with the insights the um, ancient Near East could provide to the Hebrew Bible, and how illuminating it was for you know the first time I discovered the reality of a late monotheism. These types of things blew my mind, and uh, and um, I, I just can't shake it. So I'll, I'll very very gladly continue that. Can I um, just uh, interrupt you there and say uh, I, I'm in this work group, um, and and two of the people in the work group are Jan Osman, the Egyptologist, and uh, Mark Vandermroop. Uh, and I got around these people who are seriologists, and I had the exact opposite reaction. I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> I cannot keep up with these people. They 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 are creepy in the amount of things they know uh, and in the depth of around. It was, it was one of the most intimidating things I've ever been through. But I think that's the point. I think it keeps a Hebrew Bible scholar honest. I mean, we in many ways for myself, I feel like I eat at the scraps of the table of an Assyriologist. I mean, the amount of stuff they know about the cultural context in which we claim to have expertise is if we don't at least understand what's going on. We have serious problems. So for myself, I, I consider myself a bit of a, a translation artist between Hebrew Bible scholars and Assyriologists or something like this. I am not a professional Assyriologist. Yes, I have two years of Akkadian and comps in, in Akkadian language, but, but so I, I feel competent to follow the discussion. Um, and also, so how did you end up in uh, children, the specific topic of children in the ancient Near East? Uh, I mean, the children was, it actually has... It has a very similar origin to Christine Garway's work. She has a similar book um, from with Eisenbrowns, I think it's 2014. And she mentions in her note the exact way that I found out about children. Um, the Near and Middle Eastern Studies Library at the University of Toronto is just amazing. And it, it has an, a similar origin to Chicago, but you know, didn't didn't keep it up in some years, but did a pretty good job. And um, I was just, you know. I had my office, my, my grad office in the stacks, I think it was on the ninth floor or something. So you could just roll outside of your office and browse around the stacks. So if, if this type of education doesn't continue, I don't know. And, and you could have even, 
browse through the stacks and imagine the books that were missing there, the things that you would like to write on. Anyways, flipping through one day's, one of these days, I discovered um, these children children's footprints on clay tablet from Emar, and these were debt slavery um, debt slavery contracts. Wait, can, so can I this, stop you there? Um, the actual like the actual footprint of an actual child in the clay tablet in a photo. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So these are debt slavery things. So as I was racking up some student debt, this young father sold his four children to debt slavery. And, and I just thought, well, that's a good topic. <laughs> and, and so I was just fascinated by these young children's footprints. And then you think of, um, and like I said, Christine Garway says she discovered this topic in the same way with the same EMAR tablets. And, you, you know, we go, for those of us that have kids, you do the classic handprint in the thing and it, it hangs up and it makes sure it doesn't break. And so just the contrast between and the similarities between ancient life and the modern life was interesting. So simply what I did was I had my dissertation to work on. Um, my family said I had five years to finish it. So anytime I hit something on children, I just filed it away in a file and I started having these categories that started to take shape and make sense. And I would just pop away the footnote or pop away the note or pop away the, the reference and continue on with my work. So when I finally got my first job, published the first book, returned to this work, I had a good subset of data to start. Mm. To work I, with. I love that story, uh, especially because it was the material world that drove you to the kind of the intellectual world of how they conceptualize these things, which, um, uh, Hebrew scholars, uh, Hebrew Bible scholars don't often um, think of the material world. We get, we get stuck in the textual world often. And I find a good healthy trip to the, or, uh, to the Middle East or to Israel and uh, some time on a site usually forces us to rethink the text in light of the material world as well. And I'm not an archaeologist. Uh, Christine does much better work in that area with children, but it does help keep us honest. Yeah, sometimes. and so maybe we could talk about, uh, I mean, the, 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 the book is very wide-ranging. Again, it, it begins in, you, know, you begin in, in utero, and, you know, as so many good books on the on topic do, it, it made me think about things I just never thought about before, uh, about conception in utero and the, the connection between the, the, the deity and the child, even there, and um, in midwifing and breastfeeding, and we'll get to all of these eventually, but maybe you could talk kind of in general broad brushstrokes how are children construed? Uh, what's the debate in the field right now about how children are construed in the ancient Near East? And where does your book fit into that debate? Sure. Um, so there's a small dedicated group of scholars that I think have been pushing this topic of children or childist interpretation at SBL for a while. Um, I think it's on 10 years now. Um, and I've been interacting with them a bit, but I haven't been one of the primary drivers. Um, so there's, I think there's two groups of scholars right now. Um, one is a, a group of scholars that wants to specifically name a methodology called childist interpretation and define it in light of feminist interpretation and try to recover the, vo the voiceless child from the biblical text. So this is a, a necessary task. It's an important task. It reminds us of things um, to not project too much of our contemporary values on the biblical texts um, and on the ancient culture. Um, so this is a helpful area of scholar. I wouldn't define myself in that, that light. I would define myself simply as a Hebrew Bible scholar who's interested in comparative work, and I happen to have children as a topic. Um, so I've interacted with um, Julie Faith Parker and Lorkoff Taylor and Steinberg and Felwell and all these, but I consider myself more in the line of uh, Christine Garway, um, um, uh, Heath Durrell at Princeton, Bosworth at CUA, and Claudia Bergman. Um, they're a little bit more historically inclined scholars who happen to study children, but they might go on to other topics. Now, in all fairness, uh, Garway does name herself a childist interpreter. So, so, so that's, that's where the field is right now, I think. Um, there's these two kind of groups of scholars who are trying to do this work. Um, I think my book fits into a broader discussion. Um, it gathers more ancient Near Eastern texts than is typical, so I hope it can serve not as an encyclopedic work, but a bit of more of a reference text for the field as it develops. Um, I think I encourage my colleagues who are just focused on Hebrew Bible primarily to think about their conclusions in light of the ancient Near East. Um, and then in general, I think I come up with some conclusions on my own that, that I think are helpful for the, for the field moving forward. 
So in the book, you begin with children in utero and how the cult and the deity connections help to explain views of children in the ancient Near East. Um, could you kind of sketch out in broad terms again, what is the, the value of a child in utero in Mesopotamia as you found it? Sure. So in, in the book, I want to take the reader through various stages of, of life in a child's life in the ancient Near East. And what these stages do, so just to give a structural overview to the book, every chapter looks at ancient Near Eastern material and then uses that as a primary reading lens for a select biblical text that deal with children at a similar stage. So in chapter two, that's the on utero, what I do is I look at medical texts primarily. Um, I look a bit at prayers and I look at the child deity connection in the domestic cult. Basically what this tells us, and this is reacting a bit to Steinberg's conclusions. Um, I forget how many years ago that book was, but a Sheffield book. Um, the challenge that are children just valued for their economic contribution to the family? My answer is no. Um, I think the children are far more valued in the domestic cult and they have a value that's beyond um, economic value, even though that's obvious. And this is kind of comes through in the amount of effort that's put into the medical intervention into children's life, lives, growth, growth, pregnancy. If we don't understand, there's a 50% um, child mortality rate in the ancient Near East. It might be a bit higher in um, different centers. but And then when we get into prayers, the child is described as a precious cargo that is carried along the amniotic ocean. Um, when we get into the child deity connection, we realize that um, the gods aren't involved in just a special birth like a king. The gods are involved in every human birth, according to the domestic cult in ancient Mesopotamia. So even though biblical texts might have only a few uh, texts dealing with the children in utero, the question is, do they have this background as they, they understand and express the child? And I think the answer is yes. So in that chapter, I get into Jeremiah 1, 4-5 and Psalm 139. And allow that, that background to speak to those ancient texts to determine what they're saying that's similar to their historical context and then to claim if we're going to claim they're saying something different we have to know what their cultural matrix is so i think jeremiah 1 is doing something slightly different but not what biblical studies has expected it to be for the last you know 15 20 years of biblical scholarship yeah and actually i this, I, I read a PDF version of this, which meant I was always struggling to keep, I don't know why, but paper I, I can handle much better. So um, there's a couple of details that I'm going to probably struggle to keep in my head, but we should come back to Jeremiah 20 uh, when we talk about death here uh, towards the end of the, uh, uh, towards the end of the interview. Um, okay, moving on to birth of children then, um, you, you saw a connection between uh, creation narratives themselves or the ideas about creation in Mesopotamia, and I, I wonder if this carries over to Egypt as well, if, if you've done anything on that front, um, and the birth of a child and specifically the care for the newborn. Um, and at the, at, I, don't, I don't know if it would be too strong to say at the expense of the mother, because um, there's a high mortality rate for, uh, for uh, pregnant women. Uh, but you seem to see this extra special care that's even sewn into the idea of how the cosmos is arranged. Could you flesh that out for us? Sure, a little bit. I mean, it's not that much of a stretch to see in the ancient Near East birthing metaphors for creation narratives, right? But when you look at this through children's lives, you realize that, so for example, I'll, I'll give one example, um, at creation in some Mesopotamian creation stories, you have Belit Ili or Mami, the creation god goddess. She doesn't create by herself, but she receives, um, you know, clay to create from the head god. And um, she fashions and she forms and there's poems and prayers. And that's like, that's the scribal high level example of these mythical texts that we're all familiar with. Atrahasis and Kianinma, texts like this, right? So... But what happens in the domestic cult? Well, in the domestic cult, there's some echo of this large theology, and that happens through the role of the midwife. So the role of the midwife embodies Belit Ili, or at sometimes Asla Asluhi, who is a male god. So the role of the midwife embodies something for the moment of birthing and the birthing process. And it embodies the role of the god releasing the door bolt and allowing a successful birth to come forward. And this is the great hope of any 
household. I mean, any of us who has been at a birth knows the tension involved in that moment. To call on our religious tradition is not, it's not crazy, right? So, and they were doing this, you know, 2,000, well, 4,000 years ago. And, right? and then that, going through that process and, and even the child rearing process that, that creates metaphors um, that can be used for creation or creation metaphors can be reverse applied, I guess. I, yeah, I wasn't sure on the direction of the metaphor as to whether you thought creation narratives were being retrojected onto the birth or whether the birth creates the concept which creates the, the creation narrative or maybe we can't know. It would, it would my guess it would be the latter because we're experiencing birth long before we experience writing down how it happened, right? So the, the child, we're just going to work through the child's life here as you do in the book. So the child is born, uh, and now we have this major problem that even today people are wrestling with, which is breastfeeding. How do you, how do you feed this child? And who feeds this child, right? Is it the, the mother or somebody else? Uh, you know, formula in our day, but uh, a wet nurse in their day. And then you, then you connect that to scribal culture, right? So I think that would probably be a shocking move. Uh, and I assume you're, you're connecting it because it's what you're seeing in the text. But can you connect those for us really briefly, how those two things uh, work together in, in your book? Yeah, I mean, not, not so we're on to chapter three, which is times of transition and stability in a child's life. So not that breastfeeding is connected to scribal culture, but that breastfeeding and scribal culture are the two most stable times and data sets we have in the ancient world to work with. So it's simply, we have texts about breastfeeding. We have these things called tarbitum contracts, which are contracts that contract out a wet nurse. We have how much she's paid, what she's guaranteed, what happens if the child dies in her service. We know how long the child goes and lives with the mother, and maybe some parallels to Exodus 1 to 3 are popping up here, right? And I get into those. And then the other reality is we have the scribal texts from ancient Mesopotamia, even the scribal curriculum from the Western-based scribal schools closest to the Levant. So even though that's a very small subset of children's lives, it's the, the highly specialized male child who happens to be in a scribal family, we have a data set to work with. On breastfeeding, that deals with everyone's life, but we at least have more texts to deal with. So it's just two sets of texts and two data sets that are times of stability in a child's life. Um, breastfeeding teaches us a lot about um, what the expectations were, how important children were, and how breastfeeding could be a, a trade for women to make quite a bit of money. Um, and then we also have kind of setups for how that imagery and metaphors are used in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, scribal culture teaches us a lot about children in training, what they knew, what texts they study. The fact that these are children in training, I think is something we haven't picked up on enough. Laura Koff Taylor does a little bit about it in her book, but um, these are children in training and they're studying texts about adoption, about um, breastfeeding. So they're studying texts of their peer group or their, you know, stuff like this. So, and then we get into texts about times of transition, which are abandonment and adoption texts and exposure texts. I think for most people, when they hear about uh, infant exposure in general, I mean, most, most Christians hear about this through the Roman practice uh, in, in the first few centuries. Um, but when you hear about that uh, and abandonment of infants um, and to the dogs, as you describe, right, um, they think, oh, well, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a signal that this, this culture is absolutely corrupt and it's, you know, it's gone all the way downhill that they would do that to their infants. Um, but there's a whole series of things that are set up because of, uh, a, a, why infants are exposed, and then B, uh, abandoned uh, infants sets up a whole cultural reaction as well, a response. So maybe you could talk through some reasons why infants are exposed and then what, what those responses are. Sure. So in the ancient Near East, the practice of childhood abandonment and exposure is known. Um, how widely practiced it actually was is a question because uh, Christine Garways does some really good work on this. So the phrase is peak albi issue um, to be, you know, thrown to the dogs, as it were, to thrown to the mouth of the dogs. And but the problem is, is this language is often in legal texts as a precursor to adoption. So yes, it is possible that there was childhood exposure and abandonment for a deformed child, for example. But then that language becomes adopted into the legal system as an indication of giving up one's rights to the child. Okay, So when the biological parents finally give up rights to the child, they say we have you know, given the child up to the dogs or there's other language as well. 
Um, so it becomes a legal term more than anything else. Yes, probably based on some historical reality. So it's not that children are being thrown out of the city gates and, and lying on the, the sides of mountains. And then the whole adoption system, and this is what I'm mostly interested in, is the adoption system in, in the ancient Near East a response to things like abandonment? Um, and it also could be a response to things like deformity. So there's this really interesting text from Enki Ninma where the mythological world kind of solidifies that the gods created people with, with, um, with deformities to ensure that they were part of the right trade. So when a father takes on a child in, in adoption, the father has to teach him the trade as a requirement or the, the child can return back. I mean, just the, the agency of the child is shocking for the time. So um, if someone with a, uh, you know, a foot deformity wouldn't be a good farmer, obviously, but they could be a great potter or metalsmith because they could sit and do the work. Or someone who is blind could be a good musician. And we even have examples from um, uh, uh, temple slaves who, who become part of the temple service because of a deformity. So it seems like there's a social structure in place to deal with the violence children experience. And it seems like adoption is one of those systems because the family, the nuclear family needs, needs workers to run the city. So to have just children abandoned and not used just because they're not suitable in one family structure doesn't mean there can't be a system to get them in a different family structure and find some utility. Yeah, and by family structure there, you mean literally we're looking, we're considering the trade, uh, which that child would have to be trained in. Yeah, and I prefer the word the word household rather than family because a household, I, I mean, children can go in and out of debt slavery. They can be adopted. Slaves can come in the house, can leave the house through marriages. So there's there's a household that functions under a patriarchal unit. And there's a lot of concern in the society and in the law for maintaining this family structure through the lives of children. You also talked about one of the instances uh, of, of children being abandoned or exposed based on deformity. And you, and you link this up to, now I don't remember if you said this or this is the implication I drew from it, um, but that there is this tendency, and especially in Babylonian cult, to divinize and textualize the universe so that everything is some kind of a sign from the gods, and it fits, uh, you know, plug and play into their omenology. And, and if I understood you correctly, that uh, it, it's actually, you know, we think of uh, abandoning an infant as, as it's an unwanted child, but we never, uh, I think as modern Americans, we think uh, unwanted child means uh, oh, the mother couldn't afford it, or it was psychologically untenable for her, or, or the various reasons that are given for this. Um, but that's not the reason that you seem to be suggesting there. It was actually this this uh, this divination reason. This was the gods who had marked this child like as if they marked a you know a a liver of a sheep to let you know this uh, something about this child. Is that am I understanding that correct? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was actually going to bring up liver divination as well as an example, but um, I I mean, it's not. At, compared to some other issues like the gods are involved in every human birth, that, that the child's valued beyond economics, they have a place in the domestic cult, this suggestion that you're pointing to, it does come from, there is a text from Enki and Ninma that discusses um, all the different deformities and how a child should be um, uh, placed into the appropriate place in spite of their deformity. So there's really one text that points to it, so I don't know how, how much we can rest on it, but it is a suggestion to, to consider that, you know, it's not that children are being thrown outside and they're just dying, right? That, that there is a societal and a legal system in place to engage with children of all different, you know, social statuses and things. And yeah, there's slavery as well, but, but at the same time they can, you know, our assumption, you, you mentioned the group that would say um, that this culture is backwards and everything, they don't understand the value of children, I think we really have to check that. And um, sometimes Hebrew Bible scholarship does that when it talks about children. Well, let's do a, a speed round here. I, as I promised, we um, have a few questions. You only have a few moments to answer, so you kind of have to answer off the top of your head. Um, don't worry, we won't like you know hold you to account if you say something really horrible. Well, I don't know. Uh, because you're from Canada... Uh, I am going to ask questions about hockey, so prepare yourself. Oh, good gosh. I just went to my first NHL game last week. 
I noticed that. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. So question number one. Do you have a favorite child, and do they know it? <laughs> I learned a very important lesson from my father. Uh, he loves all his children equally, and, and I think that that holds out. Um, it's amazing the personalities of different children, and you think, did we raise these same children the same way? Because they're so different so early on. Um, so no, no favorite child. Okay, no favorite child. And Well, in the second part of that, does, does any child think they're the favorite child? No, no. Okay, you've you've hid the hid hid that presumption from them. Uh, so I noticed that hockey features prominently on your Facebook page, um, <laughs> and I wonder if you could rename the sport of hockey to something like blank on ice. What would the blank be? Yeah, um, roller derby on ice, maybe. Roller derby on yeah, ice. Yeah. No, I mean I'm not. I'm not an avid hockey fan. I just, I went to my first NHL game, which the Sedins retired. And uh, it was the Oilers' last game. I grew up really liking the Oilers. And uh, unfortunately, it was also the night that the, uh, the, the Broncos, there was a moment of silence for the Broncos, the 15 young men that died. So um, uh, it, was, it was a very emotional night. And um, it was a great date night with my wife. And we had free tickets to the game. So we decided to go. And so I'm not an avid hockey fan, but every okay, Canadian okay, follows good. it a bit. Yeah. Okay, I wasn't sure if you had to sign some contract when you... You're, you're born and raised in Canada, though, right? Yep, so born and raised in northern British Columbia. Spent some time okay. in Vancouver, yeah. Uh, and have you lived anywhere else besides Israel over the summer? Um, yeah, we were in Dublin for a year, and then Toronto for a couple of years, and then Vancouver for five years, yeah. So mostly North America. Uh, if you were stuck on an island, uh, let's imagine it's a tropical island... Um, and you could j bring just two books, and that's it. What would they be? Uh, the Hebrew Bible, and probably, um, I, I'm going to say the reader's edition to the Greek New Testament, because <laughs> my Greek isn't as good as it used to be. Fair, fair enough. Yeah, no, nobody will judge you on that one. <laughs> um, now, you have to burn one book to stay alive on the island. Which do you burn first? You know what? Any one of my books. I think we get we get too attached to our books, and I think we have to ask the question: Are they tools that we constantly use? Those are the most valuable. But the book you sit on your shelf that you have emotional connection to that you haven't picked up, you should get rid of it. All right. If you're uh, leading a trip to Israel with people who've never been there before, I don't know if you've done this yet, but uh, what are your top three sites that you're going to take them to visit? Oh, top three sites. That's a, that's a good question. So um, there is in all of Israel or just in Jerusalem? or uh, Yeah, in all Israel. Okay. So Masada, because of ancient and contemporary connections, especially with uh, the final vow of the IDF on Masada that happens, or I think still happens. Um, the, uh, uh, gosh, pro this is a hard one because people are going to, oh, you didn't say this place? Um Church Holy Sepulchre, but specifically, there's a location that many tourists can't get to. It's this uh, uh, Latin inscription underneath. Um, I think the um, I forget. I think it's the Orthodox that have the key to the door. And if you know people, you can get down. It says, uh, I don't know the Latin, but it says, "My Lord, we have come." So it's probably two inscription from 250, and it's a boat, and it's a beautiful inscription. So it's probably the earliest evidence for that place. So that that's given that. And there is a set of tombs which are private. And um, they're, they're uh, tombs from probably the pre-monarchic era. And they're a private set of tombs. That's so an amazing tomb complex. And uh, no one can get into it. So I, I would probably use my connections and show students that as well. Where, where, where is the tomb complex? Uh, it is, it is a, on private land. And it's, it's a very... In Jerusalem? In Jerusalem, yeah. So it's, there, there's these beautiful areas that, that I think... Um, and I, I don't... You know, I don't have special access, but, you know, when you live there for a bit, you yeah. get to know some. Yeah, get to you see know these. people, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing community there. Have you seen the tombs uh, behind the Menachem Begin Center where they found the, the silver amulet that has the Aharonic prayer on it? No, I didn't go there. Yeah, isn't that, didn't they have it cover, covered up now or no? No, 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 it's, uh, yeah, you just have to go through the back door. Uh, you have to go through the Menachem Begin Center and out the back door. It's funny. It's the way it goes. I would add the side long. The Siloam Tunnel as well. Oh yes, yeah. Well, how how tall are you? That's 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 the that's how that experience goes. Is if you're under six foot, then that's fine. 
at least at the beginning, it opens yeah. up at the end. Then it, yeah. yeah. But you know what? Go in there. Anyone who hasn't gone to Israel, go during the middle of the day. Make sure there's no school groups in front of you or behind you because they like to scream in the tunnel. Go in with a headlamp. Get around the middle. Turn your headlamp off and sit. That's an experience. Especially in the heat of the day, you have the nice cool water flowing under your feet. Oh, yeah. So, so, so nice. Okay, last question. And you already told me you don't watch the American version of The Office. So I'm just going to see how much you've picked up in the cultural water of North America here. If you were in a room with Hitler, Stalin, and Toby, the HR representative from The Office, and you had a gun with only two bullets, who would you shoot? Pass. <laughs> <laughs> The answer we were looking for <laughs> was Toby twice. <laughs> oh my yep. gosh! Yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a pacifist. I, so I, I am as be. well. Okay, um, so I was. That's a very American question. Oh, by the way. To, it's totally American, <laughs> and and I actually am a big fan of the British office in so many ways. Uh, so you talked a bit about adoption in the ancient Near East, and. Um, and do, I, I guess I'm wondering in the Hebrew Bible, you you give some instances, but what are your like your top instances where you say this seems to be a, a, a picture of adoption? You, you cite that first Samuel doesn't look, you know, at first it does and then it doesn't. Um, so what would you say looks the most like adoption? I guess for for me, I think I think unless someone's suggested this before or, or developed it. But for me, Exodus 1 to 3 and the whole infancy story of Moses is, I think, if, if I got this right, and I, I'm excited for the reviews, but is structured off an adoption contract. And I think that does so much for the book of Exodus. There's some redactional issues to work out, but it has everything from the exposure language, the abandonment language. It has the wet nursing contract. It has the order of the wet nursing contract. It even has the payment of the wet nursing contract stated. And then it has even some of the language, some of the language of adoption is anamaruti lekum, to take as a son or to take in sonship. And it has this lekum language to take all throughout the text. So the, this is a fascinating, I, I kind of wish that was an article I'd written and then put it into the book, but it, it is what it is. So, um, and sorry, what was the second one you said? Oh, no, I think that's, I, I think that's what I, I was most interested in. I mean, I, you, I, I, I was... Well, I, I like that you went with both what you thought it was and then here's something that looks like it but doesn't quite fit the bill. Sure. I think Samuel is just not an abandonment te text. So once we have the language and imagery and order of the text in the ancient Near East about what is abandonment, when a biblical scholar says clearly Samuel is being abandoned, I, I just don't see it. Uh, like we can say that it would be considered a certain way according to the UN Declaration of the Child, and that's a valid reading right. lens or whatever. But if we're talking historically, this is not an abandonment text. And he's, he's, it's like a step up. I mean, <laughs> this is a good, this is a, a Yahweh, and where the book starts to go is the lives of children become Yahweh promotional material. Um, the social promotion of Yahweh is probably embedded through the lives of children, and I don't think that's been discussed a lot. Yeah, so on, on that point, that's my very next question, is um, you describe the, and I don't remember if you used the phrase or not, but the, that the Hebrew Bible appropriates something approaching a universal view of education, um, that all people need to be educated to some extent, and you cite Psalm 78 here. Um, and I, I'm wondering, just as, as someone who works in ritual uh, in the Torah, um, uh, do you think that, uh, you know, one of my tenets is that the ritual itself is the, the festival calendar, all the rituals, uh, Pesach and Sukkot, and uh, they all have this epistemological effect built into them, uh, which seemed to lead to this Deuteronomic language of uh, developing a wise and discerning nation. So uh, do you see that as fitting with your thesis about universal education? Well, A, did I get that right? And do you see it fitting with that? Yeah, sh sure. I think I think you represented accurately. So, so I mean, a lot of what the book does, like I said, these ancient Near Eastern moments are reading lenses for select biblical texts, right? So when we get into Psalm 78, it's student mystic language. Laura Koff-Taylor does some good work on this as well. I think it does propose this universal education, yes. But I think we have to ask the very honest question. There's a big difference between the texts that we're talking about and what's going on in real domestic cults in ancient Israel, and what knowledge they had or did not have about what was going on in the, in the temple and the temple cult. What we have from the ancient Near East is a, set of is a data set that's much broader. 
So we actually have more insight into real lives than the Hebrew Bible gives us of the lives of children in ancient Israel. So to, to answer your question, it is possible that universal education is being pushed, but I think it's being pushed as a social promotion of Yahwism. How much did it actually filter down into, now we can look at um, uh, you know, naming and the increase of Yahwistic names in a certain period of time. Like we can do certain things to start to ask the question, but that doesn't change that over 50% of the names are Baal now names still in the time we would expect it to be. So the picture the Hebrew Bible presents us is a really limited view from a very small group of elite, probably Judite scribal writers, but that doesn't mean they're writing in a vacuum. So I think just to acknowledge that the ancient Near Eastern material and the Hebrew Bible material are not the same thing, and they have a there's a different data set we have to work with when we do the examples and work through them. Yeah, and when you say there's a richer data set of the in the ancient Near Eastern material, I, I assume you're referring to we we have like contracts and uh, discussions and letters going back and forth where uh, we have something much more formal literature in, in the Hebrew Bible. The things like there is some just the. Some of the things I can't get out of my head here, so there's a Neo-Syrian letter, a Neo-Syrian inscription, and it's written in a female voice, and this woman is dying in childbirth. And she has actually lost her child in the span of 10 lines. She's lost her child, she prays to Belladili, and then she loses her own life. But it's her husband who's having this crafted in her deceased wife for it. I mean, I, I just can't, can't get any closer to the real lives of any of those of us who have known people that have lost children in childbirth or even lost mothers. Th this, is, this is real life, right? The Hebrew Bible, knowing real life, is trying to promote a religious agenda, which is, makes sense. So they're drawing off echoes and aspects of these texts. They don't know these texts necessarily, this specific text, but they know the cultural context and they live and breathe it as well. So, so when they, they speak about children, they, children have a rhetorical weight. Children are important beyond economics. Children have domestic cultic value. So they're using this to promote this new deity, Yahweh. Um, but the texts of the ancient Near East are much broader and I think provide a better insight into real life. Yeah, and so I, I think we should talk, you know, before we go away, we should talk about the violence and death of children, uh, which you ad address very directly. Uh, it's, and I think it's, uh, if, if nothing else, for the price of the book, uh, everybody should read that chapter. Now, again, it's things I've thought about before, but didn't have the tools and, and the knowledge to think about them as fully as you've walked through them there, especially the... The Assyrian practice, which is referred to in, in some Hebrew biblical texts, Amos, I think, refers to this, um, but, um, but maybe possibly is even depicted on Assyrian reliefs, uh, uh, war reliefs, but this, this idea of ripping children, infants, out of the, the wombs of mothers while they're both still alive and obviously causing them both to die. And the question is, why, you know, it's one thing to do that in war and say, well, you know, ugly stuff happens in war. It's, a, it's another thing to possibly celebrate it uh, or to let people know that it's your MO, that when you come, you're going to do that kind of stuff to them. Um, so aside from that being a horrific practice, you see there are, uh, there are rhetorical reasons why they might even promote this practice. So uh, what would be the good rhetorically outside of scaring your enemies? Um, what does it tell them about their view of children? Sure. So I think the practice of ripping children from their mother's wombs, and there's another practice. It's it's the Neo-Syrian kings are the ones that primarily promote it, and and even the ripping of wombs is only one king. Um, and if Peter Dubosky's interpretation of these reliefs is correct, uh, he's from the Pontifical Biblical Institute. Um, yeah, I think I think it's possible. But this is a, we have to realize this is a rare example. Now here's the rub when. Biblical scholars say this or that is a rare example. It's often used as an excuse to avoid some implication, right? It's this rare example, so we can ignore it. But we have to admit that even in the Hebrew Bible, there are examples when children die. So Psalm 137, you know, bash the children against the rocks. This blessed is, a, is he who... Yeah, right? blessed is he. So, or 2 Kings 2, this, this amazing event where these two female she-bears like maul these children, a whole host of children, and 2 Samuel 12, where David's first son dies, right? So I think where I'm going with this is violence does happen. It happens to children, 
but remember in the previous chapters we've showed how much children are valued. How do these things square? So violent texts, because of a child's rhetorical weight and cultic value beyond economics, are used rhetorically both in the ancient Near East and in the biblical text to say something. So let's take an example like 2 Samuel 12. Whatever sin David committed, I have an opinion it's beyond um, the murder of Uriah and beyond the adultery. Um, I think it's his failure of kingship. The Deuteronomist, whichever layer is writing that text, thinks that that sin is great enough to punish with the death of that firstborn child. That's hard. That sucks. That is their perception of the world at the time. And I'm not saying we should hold that today, but I think we have to admit that these biblical writers still live in their historical context. And they have these views of the world where at times children die and that's okay. For example, the curse, the curse text in 2 Kings 2, the prophet has been handed on the mantle and all the texts before that are proving the prophet's legitimacy. And this is the prophet's curse legitimacy. So there's some great work by Kitts on cursing in the ancient Near East. So the curse has to take hold and has to be effective. So if these children are gonna, these children from another city with probably another deity are gonna challenge a, a prophet of Yahweh, they're gonna show you how strong Yahweh is. And by, by compromising the thing that's most valued in the ancient world, the child. So, so the fact that Near Syrians um, might be might be celebrating the fact that they do this practice of ripping children out of their mother's wombs is actually telling you it, it, it's it's um, it's almost like holding up the spoils of war, saying uh, we're we're taking the most valuable things away from you when we come, right? Maybe, and it is that is a rare example, but maybe looking at Psalm one thirty seven helps. What helps communicate? So if if we know the history, we know that the exiles are living, the, the Israelites are living in exile, the Judites are living in exile. We know their life isn't that bad. We know they're getting married. We know they're engaged in trade. So if you want to convince your people that this, you know, foreign presence is bad and you want to communicate your pain and the loss of the temple, how do you communicate that? What level of, of, of rhetoric do you have to get to? Well, let's talk about the thing that's the most valuable to across cross-culturally and I think that's where that psalm goes it goes to a pretty dark place yeah and so in, in some ways the most violence the, the more violence against children described actually reinforces the point well it's because they're valuable that they, they're going to talk about these things and use them rhetorically in their in their text that that's where I'm going we'll see if it, it stands <laughs> yeah yeah um, well, maybe I could ask for like just an overall takeaway when you think a lot of our listeners hail from the church uh, or thinking theologically through these issues. Um, what would you consider like, you know, what's the number one reason we need to understand the ancient Near Eastern context of children in light of how we read the Hebrew Bible? I think that the work that's being done on children in ancient Israel and the ancient Near East will provide many more texts to talk about the value of children. Um, we have a ridiculous refugee, refugee crisis that was going on while I was writing this and is still going on. We have bombing and gassing of young children in Syria right now. I mean, however, and I don't know if this is my task to make the jump between this work. I'll do it in classes and I do it in front of my own church groups and things. But there is a rich set of texts. Some of them are disturbing, but there's a rich set of texts in the Hebrew Bible that discuss the value and the religious value of children in their relationship with God. If that's not of interest to those who are churched, I, I, I'd be confused. But I think that set of texts, because we have to remember this genre, if we want to call it that, has only been, um, research has only been, been done in the last 10 years. Um, before Hebrew Bible scholars would say, the ancient world didn't really consider children were important. They're only valued for their economics, so we don't need to study them in biblical texts. But what these 12 monographs that, that these scholars have done over the past 10 years has shown, there is a genre of biblical children. And I think it's a lesson for both those in the church and those who do exegesis, that when you hit a biblical text with a child in it, there is a lot going on there that needs to be considered in your exegetical analysis. And I think these scholars have done a great job, and I'm just hopefully forwarding that conversation a bit. 
Yeah, no, that's that's great. Um, and I think you're right on the money. If, if we don't care about these things, then I don't know what we're doing. Um, I do have one last question for you. It's the question we ask all guests. So if you've heard the show before, you already know what's coming. Maybe you've prepared an answer even. No, I haven't. Um, I forget. Okay. What is it? <laughs> well, the question is this. Uh, what, you know, surveying the landscape of biblical studies, maybe even ancient Near Eastern studies, if you see something over there as well, but what concept or assumption or methodology in biblical studies would you like to see the sun set upon? You want it to see, see it go the way of the dodo bird. You know, you know what I, so I'm coming from a, a Catholic background and, um, I, I don't think there's not an answer. So nothing because these things will naturally come and go as they're needed. So I think all of these reading methods and ways of reading text, you're also speaking to someone with a degree in English literature, right? These multiple ways of reading texts have been helpful at different times. I think when people hold on to things for too long, it, here, I'll answer it this way. When the method starts to determine the answer, then we have a problem. I think we should put the texts first. So the text at hand will help determine what reading method is appropriate at any given time, and we can't claim that one reading method does everything. So I, I would like to see more dialogue between multiple methods, either within single scholars work or across scholars. Well, Sean, thank you very much uh, for spending this time with us on OnScript. It's very much appreciated. That was great, Drew. Thank you very much. Uh, so Sean's book, um, The Children in Ancient Israel, the Hebrew Bible and Mesopotamia in Comparative Perspective, is coming out with Oxford University Press. Is it out and available for purchase yet, Sean? I think it's pre-order, so I think in September they'll have it out. Okay, so very soon you can have your own hot copy in your hands. One final nota bene, uh, after we recorded this interview, Dr. Flynn realized that he had misstated a few things, and so just out of a care for his field and people who might be listening, he wanted to make sure that we all knew that when he said, um, he translated a certain phrase, which I am not going to pronounce correctly, thrown to the dog's mouth, he meant to say that it's actually translated saved from the dog's mouth, which means that's the preconditions for somebody being put up for adoption, that they're being saved from the dog's mouth. Secondly, uh, Sean wanted to make sure that he didn't misrepresent anybody. He, he stated very briefly that the scholar Kef Taylor uh, was a childist in their approach, and he wanted to make sure that he corrected it to say that they were child-centered in their approach. Those are two different slightly nuanced positions and approaches to the topic. That's all for now. See you next time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.